you know, it's like people showing up with horses to World War One. Uh, you know, like when there's tanks on the field, it's like, oh shit, like did we we misjudge this? I think you know that's kind of like where this might be going. It's like congratulations, you have this algo stablecoin. Uh, it's integrated into approximately zero games uh, because you know that's not just not what consumers want, and we just need to build for a broader consumer constituency. I think that's where we're going. Before we jump into the app, quick reminder that nothing on Bell Curve is financial advice. Everything is just a meme. Hope you guys enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You're joined by Michaels 1 and 2 and Vance. No Yano today. Getting married. <laughs> Choosing marriage over a podcast. Cut. I don't know what's up with that guy. Yeah, cut. I know. We're going to have to have a serious talk when he gets back. It's pretty messed up that he's doing this. But, uh, You're more dedicated to this pod or yeah. your wife? <laughs> exactly. Well, I hear he's getting a massive dowry uh, for the for the wedding, so uh, it all kind of levels out. He's just <laughs> doing it in his self-interest. Um, yeah. All right, guys, we got it's been a little bit of a light week for for stories. But, uh, you know, I get we we had this thing. We were going to talk about markets. I keep getting called macro Mike. So I, I hate bringing <laughs> up charts on this podcast anymore. But uh, any takeaways from basically FOMC happened this week. Basically, it's just down only. Uh, you know, it's all doom and gloom. Dollars ripping up, yields ripping up, everything going down. Is there any takeaways other than that? Like any any nuance that I'm <laughs> missing? The, the charts aren't looking good, boys. I don't know. I'm, I'm like high level. I'm still a firm believer in like you probably should be bearish when interest rates are at zero and people are buying mortgages by the hundreds of billions per month. And you should probably lean the other way when, you know, like the world is about to end. The dollar is taking out, you know, it's 25 year high. The 10 years above 4%. Like, you know, it feels like you kind of need to lean against the crowd. In, in a lot in, a lot of scenarios, and this is certainly kind of one of them, at least in our opinion. Well, so one thing that I thought was really interesting is actually as soon as the announcement happened and 75 basis points was the official uh, announcement, markets actually went higher. And mm -hmm. then what happened was Chair Powell comes in and says, we actually might be going through a correction in the housing market, and that's when markets dropped. And, and so I think it, it's more nuanced than just, you know, what is the number, what's the top line figure? But man, if we're going to about to go through a recession in the housing market, things are going to get a lot tougher, especially given the fact that mortgage rates. So not only mortgage rates have gone up, they go up with interest rates. The amount of mortgage payment per month has, uh, in some charts I've seen, has two or three X. So imagine your variable rate mortgage has just, you know, 300% increase like that. Sucks. Yeah. I think that's the... Yeah, there's a, it's there's a chart out there that uh, it's like the percentage of disposable income that goes to your mortgage. And when housing prices were rising, that percentage was actually going down because of what interest rates were doing. But now it's this like historic, you know, rise and it's like more than doubled. It's like six and a half percent or something like that. It was below three, you know, nine months ago. So it's like that percentage of disposable income is just way, way up. And exactly. Yeah. I don't like, have you guys looked for housing recently? I feel like I whine about this all the time, but I live in, uh, <laughs> in Williamsburg, man. It was insanity trying to find an apartment. Still. They don't even exist still. Yeah. Like a month ago, I probably mm. saw 20, you know, it was like to give you ballpark figures. I feel like you probably could have gotten an apartment, like rented a place. It was like decent for like 2,700 bucks a month, like one bedroom. Now it's like, there's nothing. Don't even bother looking if it's below four like a month. And there are people, you know, they're like bidding wars. Like you go to these apartments and it's like, 
you know, there's a line out the door and you got to put down the, I got a place. I had to put down a deposit site unseen for an apartment. And wow. I just saw the listing 30 minutes before. That's how ridiculous it still is. Yeah. So I mean, pretty nuts. Francisco, everyone's trying to sell their house. It feels like they're cutting rent prices. Like if you show up at the open house, like I think you win. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like the opposite story in many effects, but wow, not entirely surprising. Like it, it, in San Francisco specifically, it feels like kind of like all the enterprise sales team bros have moved out. Um, and that has like constituted a large part of the population of like where Michael and I live, which is, um, we're not going to give exact locations, but like the North side of the city. I don't know. It's kind of like, depends on where you live, honestly. San Francisco and, prices have gone down over the past two years. And there's a, there's a really interesting article. There's actually been a few articles that have come out about it. By the end of 2022, 40%, 40% of San Francisco commercial real estate will be vacant. That, the thing about That's that. wild. There's nice. 75 million square feet commercial in San Francisco and, and something like 32 of the 75 is going to be vacant. It's uh, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of really interesting changes that come through in this market. Insane. San Francisco is either going to nuke itself or it's going to have some sort of rebrand into like, I don't, I don't even know what, but it feels like the city leaders are starting to kind of like realize it and, and tack a little bit further into like the, we love technology wind that they used to embrace. Yeah. Um, what is your, what is your guys opinion? I don't want to go too far down the just San Francisco route, but like I hear this. So I've been to San Francisco like two or three times in my life. Always seemed pretty good to me. The way people describe it in the last like two years, it's like, it's falling into the ocean. Like it is Sodom and Gomorrah over there. Like fire and brimstone is all but raining down. Like what's going on over there? Um, it's an, int- it, <laughs> yeah. What is going on? Well, so I think you have a really interesting mix of some of the most progressive people in in positions of power. Um, You also have one of the largest, if not the largest, I think, metropolitan budget per year. Uh, But you also have one of the largest homeless issues. And uh, and so you you put that all together and and you get into a situation that I I think is, you know, is going to have to change. Um, San Francisco leadership has done basically everything to um, root out all the all the economic centers in the city. Uh, and I think a lot of the people that live there, you know, my, myself included, I think Vance feels the same way. Frankly, I love San Francisco because of the proximity to all the places around San Francisco. The city itself is not, you know, the reason why you live there, in my mind. Um, it's the proximity to Lake Tahoe. It's the proximity to Marin. Um, and right now, like the city itself has to reinvent itself. Yeah. I mean, I, I moved here after the gold rush. I moved here right before the pandemic. And so like, I never even really got to see San Francisco at its prime. Um, and so like, you know, what I've experienced with San Francisco is like super intense work, everyone shitting on it, telling me I need to move. But like, you know, like the people who moved to like Miami and New York, like I haven't found a lot of like super like long-term happiness stories there. And like Michael and I's lives are like pretty small. Like we go to work, we kind of work out, like we wake up, walk the dog, whatever. It's like pretty self-contained. It's a beautiful city. so. I like it. And the more people shit on it, the more I kind of find a reason that it can kind of like reinvent itself. Cause like all of the things that people shit on it for are either like irrelevant or those people have already moved out. So it's kind of like yeah. you can mold it to whatever you want, which is cool. Yeah. What, what do you guys think about, uh, I mean, markets, it was, it's really weird. Uh, if you look at just like what the NASDAQ did basically after the FOMC, it was like this weird spike when you got the 75 basis point hike. And then to your point, Michael, yeah, it's basically been dumping since maybe on fears of some sort of housing recession. 
it doesn't actually seem like crypto's reacted that negatively. Like, I mean, it hasn't been great. I'm not going to look at these charts and be like, hell yeah. But I mean, it could be a lot worse, I sort of think. Um, so I don't know if you guys have any opinion on that. And the other thing I'd love to get your thoughts on, Vance, we were kind of talking about, you know, how at the at the tail end of a bull market, when everyone's kind of accepted the bears, there's like this last people are kind of holding on to their their bags in general. Um, but very often, right, like anything out of with very few exceptions, right? Like ETH kind of being one of them from the last cycle, most of these coins will basically never hit their all-time highs again. So I'd be curious to get your take on just overall state of the, the crypto market and then maybe specifically like why that tends to be the case. Like why some of the high flyers from past cycles, they never, you know, kind of break through. Yeah, I mean, this is something that we've noticed with like people we talk to, junior people on our team that are kind of like, you know, when the market comes back and like, you know, like this, like DGEN, DeFi, or like, you know, super like crazy NFT, PFP projects come back. And at some time, you kind of, you don't like have the heart to tell them that like, hey, like it's going to like not be the same and it's going to be way different. And that's almost like the point. In 2018, you know, in the summer of 2018, like all of these people were basically saying that the ICO market would come back and then it would be interesting and that would be kind of the thing that would push the market forward, just basically like a return of old behavior that was not sustainable. Um, and for us, like that just doesn't feel likely. Uh, you know, where the market is going or towards things like games or to projects with utility or things like regulated DeFi or at least like more institutionally oriented DeFi, you know, things like we've talked about, like X margin and maple and things like that. Like those are the things that we think are going to be powerful. But as a result, like you have all these people holding on to these old concepts um, very like strongly and they don't want to let them go. And I think that's kind of like the next phase of, of the bear market that we're going into where people are just kind of like, all right, uncle, like, you know, whatever, like, you know, what we're doing isn't working. So like we kind of need to throw all the cards in the air and like see what lands face up and then go after that. Um, and I think like what I look for, like what are the really compelling alternative visions for the future uh, that like people can, you know, push forward crypto towards. And I think like gaming and, and specifically like free to own and, and things that have like a low barrier to entry, those are the things which get us excited on the consumer side. And like one of these podcasts that we listen to is, is with Gabe Layden, like the whole thing is he's calling out like Axie, the PFP mania, like all the games on the ETH L1 as we know them, it's 60,000 daily active addresses. like. If we grow that 10x, it shouldn't be that hard. Like we can build something disproportionately valuable. We don't need to hold on to all these things that we kind of remember from the last bull market because frankly, like most of them won't come back. I mean, 10x, what about like 100 or 1,000x? You know, 60,000 60, is nothing, right? right? Um, yeah. I think one of the other things too is that, uh, so totally agree with everything Van said. Um, you kind of have, what's going on in the markets right now is you just, you can't sell when you've already sold everything. And, and I think at this point, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of reaching that rock bottom place where, you know, there aren't any more for sellers. There aren't any more, you know, liquidations that are happening that require people to get rid of their assets. You're starting to find in a lot of these assets, I, I think what you could consider to be deep value. And, you know, you're, you're now looking at it in terms of, you know, what's this thing actually worth? And to go back to the other point that man said, it, all these things are, are really going to have to change their narrative. Like there's going to have to be a new narrative that drives this stuff forward. And every single cycle in crypto, it's a new thing that pulls everything out. Uh, and, and right now, I, I would agree. I think gaming is the only viable chance, uh, but it's also probably the best viable chance that we have to get 100 million monthly active people with wallet addresses. Maybe they don't necessarily know it. It's a custodial wallet that they're interacting with, but they're going to have a wallet on the back end of whatever they're transacting with. 
And, and I don't think it's going to be something where you, you know, you buy an in-game asset for $10 because you expect to be able to sell it for a thousand in a week. I think it's going to be more like you buy an in-game asset, you use it, you play with it. It's, it has fundamental utility and maybe you sell it for $12 or 15 or maybe even like five. But like yeah. the, the speculative nature of what all these assets have been so far is I think actually at odds with the adoption curve that we'll see with games. You know, mm. the second you have the ability to have something go 100x or 10x even, the game is over. Yeah. I want, I want to get into games. I just want to get one, your take on one more, just about dApps and like the ability to underwrite dApps. Let's say in, more in DeFi. I think one of the one of the reasons too why like old old coins basically never see all-time highs is probably they're just like paradigm changes, right? And it's very tough to, uh, you know, keep up with new things in crypto cycles. But I also think one of the pretty consistent things that drives adoption in crypto thus far has been rewarding early users. Um, and I think one of the reasons why it's difficult for dApps to, trend, you know, uh, succeed across multiple different cycles is, you know, in one cycle, you kind of give away all the rewards that sort of make sense to give away. And then you're competing with other uh, dApps that may or may not have a better, more improved pro uh, product, but they haven't um, I'm struggling, blown their proverbial load, so to speak, on, on all the rewards, right? <laughs> right out of the gate. So do you, do you see that as being like a major impediment for why some of these dApps like don't you know, tend to reach, uh, you know, persist over multiple cycles or ever reach their high again? Or what do you think? There, there's a really interesting chart that I think Chris Dixon put out, uh, which is basically like the network effects with tokens applied to them. Mm. And uh, he, a lot of his point was we can break down the, the cold start problem by incentivizing people with tokens. You can jump into a network, you can be incentivized for being early, you can get access to the network and appreciate in the value in, in the network as it grows. The problem with that, though, is that what happens when you have the, the long-term effects of when people aren't receiving the same amount of tokens, where you have the early class of users who are rich with tokens, but you know the, the million in first or the, the 10 million in first person that joins the network isn't able to get the same amount of value. And, and that, I think, is you know kind of where a lot of that model breaks down and we have yet to see a good kind of use of tokens to be able to solve that problem. We haven't hit anything that has 10 million or even, you know, really a, a million uh, daily active users. But you can imagine a situation where if you don't have the ability to incentivize people at that late stage, you know, think about the, the comparison of uh, the value that you get from joining Twitter as the 10 millionth user. Well, the fact that you're joining Twitter means that there's this whole network, there's this whole communication and and content that's in there. And it's actually more valuable at the later stages than at the early stages. With with tokens, it's the reverse. And and so I think we really need to think long and hard about how you make it, you know, the 10 millionth user is just as valuable uh, using a token model as opposed to, you know, what you would get if you're joining a social network. Yep. Most token emission curves look like this. They go down and they flatten. Mm. Um, and if you look at helium, like, you know, they've spent the meat of their token emissions on getting these hotspots distributed. And it's like, not clear that they're in the right hands of the right people. It's not clear. It's like the right network functionality or bandwidth or like the right part of the spectrum. Like, I think you're going to see a lot of these token projects that like really tried to hit escape velocity with this first shot of tokens and, and now like don't have as many to kind of go around for the next, whatever they're trying to do. Um, and that's another way you can lose is just like, you shoot your, your shot too early. Yeah. You know, there's another funny 
funny thing about how tokens work as opposed to equity, like equity, and maybe this is a holdover from like the way Bitcoin worked with its kind of hard cap fixed supply 21 million. But a lot of these tokens, when they come out, they're like, hey, this is how many tokens I have, right? And then they kind of break it down into like these different use cases. Some of it's for the community or the developers or for incentives or whatever. And there's this idea that you can't go over that supply, but that's not how equity works, right? You sit down and you like have a cap table, right? But then you issue new shares either at every new funding round or whenever the board basically says you can, right? Uh, There are these kind of predetermined milestones. It's just a funny thing in terms of uh, maybe that's a something that exists right now that shouldn't really necessarily exist because why, why would you put a hard cap on the amount that you could issue? It's a question of if you can get more in return for what you pay out in equity, right? It's just a, it's a, capital compounding problem, not a hard cap problem, I think. Uh, look at what Adobe did last week with Figma, or or yeah. you know, supposedly will will do with Figma when that deal closes. You know, $20 billion acquisition, 10 of it was in cash, but 10 of it was just in stock that was issued. Yeah. And and so it's the ability to take this cap table, this existing, you know, liquid asset that trades every every single day on the NASDAQ, and create more of it to go off and buy a company. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I would love to see the data and I think I've seen it from a couple years ago, but it's somewhere around like three to 4% is the average, uh, inflation of, uh, huh. stock, uh, per year per, you know, I think New York stock exchange or maybe NASDAQ, but you know, on average three to 4% of stock is issued just in compensation to people that work there for acquisitions. Um, and, and that's the net of buybacks as well. Um, so even with buybacks being one of the core value drivers of these different equities, you're still seeing a positive inflation rate. It's really interesting. Um, I'd love to get your guys' thoughts on just gaming in general. There's a really great podcast actually from Gabe Layton. Uh, it was a good suggestion, Vance. Um, maybe before we get into the specifics of that pod, I know you guys are pretty opinionated on this and are looking into it pretty aggressively. Could you just like lay out what's your, if you had to just What's your thesis for gaming in Web3? I know you guys are very positive on it, but if you could just like kind of lay out what your overall framework for what it is and what the opportunity is. Yeah, so I, I think it's like for us, less of like, like are, are Michael and I gaming people? No. I mean, we're like consumer technology people. Michael work at Snapchat. I work at Netflix. Like we both have lots of friends that work in the gaming community. But like we're not like, you know, like super overzealous, like StarCraft nerds. We used to play all those games, but like that isn't kind of like core to who we are. I think what the things that interest us more are just like the market dynamics uh, within gaming and, and as it transitions over to crypto. So like on the demand side, you have 3 billion people a year who play games. Uh, there's a billion people, a billion five people who make less than uh, $7 a day who have an internet connection. Um, you know, and so like these are going to be the first natural users of these games because like, you know, it's probably not going to be play and or play to earn. It might be like play and earn as like a byproduct. Um, and so that's powerful. And so like you have the latent demand and these people look and feel and act like crypto native users. They do things in digitally endogenous ecosystems and they transact in virtual currencies. Like it's like we're close cousins, you know, somewhere along the line, like we got separated. Um, and so that that's the demand side. The supply side is, um, all of the game developers in the world who for the past 10 years have relied on mobile free-to-play advertising to power their business model. And right now, there's a thing called IDFA, which is the unique identifier that developers use to track uh, users across different devices. And they use that to retarget them with ads. And the retargeting is basically the, like the most powerful aspect of the like e-commerce advertising uh, like ecosystem that stands today, where it's like, 
you have more data, you retarget, you get more specific, like you get better CAC, you get better LTV. Um, and that's kind of like really the thing that powers the flywheel. Apple removed that. Uh, and like, you can see that in Facebook's earnings, like they went down a lot, they went down Snapchat's earnings. I forget, I think they were like Q4 of last year when they got announced and Snapchat blamed them. And so like all of these developers, the supply side <clears throat> are basically saying, uh, we can't make any money our current business model. Um, we need some sort of new type of game that we can build that you know, has some sort of new monetization um, and we need to have it done fast. And so like 70% of all pitches that we see are games. And it's like kind of like this like refugee movement of like, you know, like we're coming to this new land and like they have all these like shiny new objects and we create new games and better monetization. Like people are already getting rich. And so like you have the demand, you have the supply. And I think in between that, you have the blockchain and the blockchain is just something that like you're seeing new emergent behavior, whether it be things like Dark Forest or whether it be things like Stepin or whether it be things like Axie, like call them speculative, call them whatever you want. Like there's something there on some dimension that's working. And so, yeah, I think like that is the, the, the reason for our bullishness. Um, I also think it's kind of like, you know, uh, these are the times in the bear market where you need people to come up with like compelling alternative, uh, like, you know, visions and shared goals for the whole ecosystem to go towards. And by process of elimination, like DeFi, I don't think it's going to be the thing that pulls us out of it. I think it's going to be a very large industry that benefits from the upswing, but it's not going to be the thing that actually catalyzes that movement. Music is too small. Um, content slash e-commerce is just like not quite there yet. Um, and gaming is the world's biggest market. We see, we're seeing all the pitches, like, process of elimination, this is where we're going. Um, and I think the thing that we have that a lot of people don't is like, we see 3000 pitches a year. Like yeah. we see everything. We have the, we have the bird's eye view. 3000 so pitches. That's so many. I mean, on any given day, we have, you know, uh, probably five people taking, you know, probably like five to 10 pitches each. Um, and you know, over 365 days, you know, that adds up. Uh, and so, yeah, we see a lot of stuff and all of it's launching in Q1. So we're going to find out pretty quickly uh, if we're right or wrong. And it'll take some time, but like, it's not something that we have to wait 10 years for is the point. Like this is a rival uh, vision of the future for 2023, 2024, which I think what people are looking for right now. And fully agree with all of that. And the only things that I would add just to you know hammer these points home uh, 3 billion monthly active users around the world, uh, 200 million yearly revenue, which is larger than music, movies, and art combined. The entire industry of mu music, movies, and art, you know, that's, that's kind of the scale that we're talking about. Uh, Free-to-play represents about 100 of the 200. And the way that free-to-play monetizes is you have, on average, somewhere between like one in four, one in three percent of your users who are actually buying things in-game. You know, mm -hmm. and and this is a lot of what the podcast talks about. But you know, free-to-play was this this movement that basically everybody in the game world said, "No way, never going to happen. Not going to be a viable business," and completely changed the game industry forever. I I think if you if you think about you know one to three percent monetization. Um, but you're spending all of that money. And the second that you as a, as a player of this game, spend that money in game, you're buying virtual currency, you're buying virtual assets, you're spending it. The second that you stop playing the game, the money's gone. You know, it, it has literally left your wallet and gone to the developer and that's it. If on the other hand, you were ascribing value to something that had a secondary marketplace for it, you had the ability to recoup some of that value. Maybe, you know, if the game gets successful, 
and you have something that's a, a more rare item, you can actually realize a profit on top of the money that you spend in game. Well, uh, what do you think that monetization rate goes to? Uh, I mean, our guess is probably it, it goes up 10x. You know, you're talking about like 10 to 30 percent of people actually monetizing in game if they have you know a pretty solid understanding that they can recoup a lot of the value. And so, you know, are, are these games going to be differentiated? Yeah, totally, eventually. But right now, they look and feel exactly like the games that we've been playing. You know, for the last 10 years, the major difference is the business model behind them. And, and I think that's you know where we're seeing a lot of this you know, a- aggregation of games ultimately get to in the next, call it 12 to 18 months, it's really just kind of the same games. And, you know, people know how to build games. People know how to build successful, fun to play games. But now you're talking about a 10 to 30% monetization rate and a new business model behind it. So, you know, I, I think that's really what's going to be the first powerful narrative. Eventually, you're going to have these games that are interesting because they have a marketplace, but it's just going to take a while for people and, and frankly, um, all of the interactions that that people are used to, it's going to take a while for them to get used to a marketplace as well. Yeah, I would, so just to just to make sure I'm understanding kind of the, uh, um, and then we can kind of get into like free to free to own, right? The you know Gabe Layden sort of thing. But basically, is the idea that so of this gaming market that exists today, it's um, yeah, roughly fifty percent, so about a hundred million dollars worth of that is uh, what's free to play is the is the terminology for it. Yeah, and that's basically you get monetized through like in game either ads or does that include like buying things like the, you're buying like a hammer or something or some sort of upgrade or whatever for uh, and gamers hate that exactly. because it like it influences you you don't want to be basically be able to pay your way right to like being better in the game. It's kind of like it's seen as you know not not great obviously right you kind of want to actually earn it um so 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 pay to win is actually a a pretty dominant narrative in different geographies and and one of the things that i think is really interesting here is that every every kind of population has a different dominant game or game type uh pay to win is actually really popular in china uh and in parts of asia um, it's not as popular in the U.S. and, and EU, um, but you know you can't have models where paying to win is is the dominant game model. So in China, they're like, all right, enough of this bullshit. I just want to win this game. Exactly. <laughs> I will. I will pay. I will win this game. Um, so what's the you know one thing that um, I don't know if you guys ever played a lot of games when you I, I wouldn't have called myself a gamer, but I definitely played a good amount of Xbox, and uh, I I definitely remember doing things like I played a lot of Halo 3 was kind of my my game and I do remember going on these like quests right and the the, the friction for going on these quests was enormous because I couldn't drive at that point and I'd ask my mom to like take me to Toys R Us and like get the guidebook for the game you know then I had to like compete you know I had to rebeat the quest that I already beat on on legendary value then I got collect these skulls and I got this Hayabusa armor and the whole reason I did that was because I had three nerd friends that would come over and I'd be like you see this armor Let's go. <laughs> you see this? Yeah. <laughs> Very tight. Uh, so just imagine the amount of like friction that I had to go through for a relatively small reward is basically the idea for how NFTs and how NFTs and games kind of end up, you uh, increase the size of that market is there's interoperability between, okay, I can take this NFT out of this game and move it into that game. Is that kind of the idea? Or how do we increase the amount of people that are spending money in game? It, it's not about the the interoperability. I think like that's actually one of the things that doesn't make sense with game mm-hmm. pitches. It's like, we're going to take this sword and this like perfectly balanced like crypto economy, and we're going to put it into this like other crypto economy that doesn't have a concept of a sword. And it's going to like 
be awesome but really it's just gonna like mess up everything like we just like don't really believe that maybe if they're like close cousins and it's like the crypto halo 2 versus halo 3 you can bring it over like tbd but i think the more compelling thing is like the price points to get into these games are are very meaningful and and the economics of of like the revenue that's generated is like extraordinarily power law distribution where it's like three percent like to michael's point if you don't have things that you need to pay for and you can instead incentivize this game where you mint the NFT, you know, that NFT has like future rights to more NFTs. Like you incentivize this velocity based economy instead of like this aggregate dollar based economy. You don't have to charge people a ton of money. You can just have them have these NFTs and have actual upside ownership in the game. And that's enough to get, you know, the, just the rate of monetization up. And so like you look at, you know, the 60,000 daily addresses on Ethereum today, like they are spending a lot of money, but they're also creating a lot of value for themselves and others who are holding these collections of, of PFPs. Um, and like, that is like the core concept where instead of having this like very kind of like predatory, you know, like monetization CAC and LTV based game, you're actually creating something that has communal value. And so like, sure, maybe people are spending more money on that, but like, the uh, the DigiDiQ NFT PFP collection, that's already traded $70 million of volume, like $70 million of value has been created. And so like, sure, if you rake 10% of that, like you're gonna add to your game's economics and that's what's like fundamentally powerful. Um, and if we can, you know, have people get their first, and that, so there's like two other concepts which are really interesting in the, in the Gabe Layden podcast. One is like this concept of like the billion dollar NFT and uh like right now if you look at apple the most expensive thing that you can buy on apple is a hundred dollars like like blows that up like that model changes completely like it's hard to understate how important that is um and so like that's kind of like one big thing where you know like you just have like these new SKUs that you can create like you can have a billion dollar nft that's communally owned and managed like all these different things are possible but the second part is just like um there's only 60,000 daily addresses on ETH. Like yeah. something special about what's happening on Ethereum and the concept of ETH is money where like, we've always thought about like, like how do you onboard someone into web three? I'm just going to send you ETH. It's like, what do I do with that ETH? It's like, you just look at it. It's there. It's, it's like, no, it's like, here's an NFT. It's in a game. Well, if it's going up, actually, it's pretty good. That <laughs> yeah, actually works. You know, if you have someone that's playing a game that has an NFT that's like legging their way towards a whole ETH, like onboarding people into ETH, the currency via games is like something else that's like crazy. Like that's how ETH gets back to like, you know, 15,000 ETH spent per day at 5k per ETH. Like that, that, that's what drives that in my mind. It, it's basically the only thing that can. Yeah. To piggyback on that concept, I did, it was actually a little bit of a, a light bulb for me listening to him describe maybe what the, almost the customer journey of how people might get into crypto and, and end up holding more ETH. Cause I had always been thinking of it from the pr- perspective of, you know, games and ETH kind of make sense because if you're a kid, again, going back to my days playing Halo, uh, you know, if you did want to buy something online, like I'd like borrow my mom's credit card, it would be much easier, right? If you had a way to obfuscate that, right? I think kids would want to spend money on games, but it's like, how do you, how do you do that? Cause they would have to buy ETH. So how would they do that? But honestly, getting an NFT and then having them acquire ETH that way actually seems like the much more intuitive now that I see it, that that's probably a more intuitive way to get people into the ecosystem. I mean, he, he's he's the one that coined it, but uh, free to own is the you know, the replacement for free to play, yeah. and being able to have ownership 
in an NFT that relates to a game, in maybe even a fungible token that relates to the governance of the game. Uh, you know, like these aspects of ownership, I, I think there's a lot of value that you can ascribe to that. Uh, and one of the examples that he gave is, I, I think it was the Reddit, uh, the Reddit NFTs that were given away for free. You know, yeah. imagine just like having an NFT and just the ability to say that it's in my wallet. I can prove that it's there and, and maybe it's worth five, 10, 15, a hundred bucks. Who knows? But like, I got this thing for free. Like, I, I think free to own is actually going to be the, the mechanism. Um, and you know, it, it all relates to ownership. The, the other thing I think is missing is like, um, so assume that, you know, our, my like, you know, 12 year old cousin gets into this stuff and I give him his first NFT, it's free to own. And he, and he like, you know, he's playing in the game and he's trying to like that into ETH. I don't think the, I think the NFT markets will change where it's like all like NFTs for ETH basis. I think we're going to see kind of like swap markets come into like being very popular where it's like, I have the, you know, these two halo skulls, I'll trade you for the Hayabusa armor. Cause like, if you're 12 years old, like that's the, that's conceptually what makes the most sense to you. Cause you're like, I have this thing, I'm trading it for that thing. Like, you know, I'm eventually going to like my way into ETH, but it's not just going to be like, I have this one FT straight shot to ETH. It, like you have to, there's more yeah. machinations that you need to go through for that to really work. Mm. Do you think, you know, Axie it tried to build and I think still has, I don't know if anyone uses it, but Ronin, right? So like they, there was a point, there was a period of time where I think they also saw this in-game economy that they were building. And there, there was a point where it was like, well, are we going to basically leverage existing, um, DEXs or are we going to try to build our own DEX that I think ended up still leveraging Uniswap. But I, I guess my question to you guys is, I, I think, because to your point, I think there is an enormous advantage for building in-game financial infrastructure so that you can, you know, better make, have better utility on these NFTs that you're playing with or, or doing or doing whatever. Do you think that these game ecosystems are going to be the ones that build them or are they going to leverage, uh, you know, primitives that are getting built in DeFi? I, so, I, think, there's, I think there's going to be a new model for DEXs, like, mm. you know, like, okay, launch on Avalanche C-Chain. All right, great. Is there a DEX? Is there a lending? Is there lending? Is there uh, like bridging? Like, okay, there's none of those things. All right, sure, we got to go build them. Like, all right, I don't mm. have blockchain devs. So where, where do I get them? Do I ask the Avalanche Foundation? Like, those are the conversations that we have with a lot of people where it's like the last mile of like infrastructure is like things they don't think about. Well, we think are going to kind of like dominate these like C chains and other stuff like that, or, or kind of like these payment for order flow models, where like it's like these super modular dexes that like you know can deploy in the drop of a hat. You don't need to vote through Uniswap V three governance and see how everyone's feeling. It's just like okay, cool. Like there's some payment for order flow model. It's based on a Cosmos chain that can interoperate with anything. And the model we're describing is Dflow. It's just Porco. Like obviously, like we're biased, um, but like it's just like this idea that. You know, you don't need to go through all these hoops and, and things like you can just deploy these DEXs that are instantly liquid to whatever degree you want on any chain. Um, and I think that's going to be mm -hmm. the model that wins, especially when these games are going across more chains. They have their own chains like things are going to start fragmenting. And I think that's going to be a big trend. So uh, totally agree. Uh, the, the the model right now, which I still think that we're stuck in and maybe what we could call like Web2 gaming mental models every single game and every single game publisher wants to own their own marketplace. You know, they don't want to have like, they don't want to integrate with OpenSea. They want to have, you know, yeah. Starcraft slash marketplace or Starcraft.com slash marketplace and have that be the place where you can transact Starcraft assets. And because they, you know, are in this mental model of owning the IP, managing their own assets and maintaining this, this, 
basically this ecosystem, you know, that is the dominant game model for how, you know, places like Epic became Epic because they just owned everything within. And ultimately what that means is it, it just furthers the point on if you're going to have fragmentation around the user experience of where these assets are transacting and trading hands, you're going to need something like payment for order flow, you know, the ability to have, you know, these disjointed marketplaces instead of unified liquidity. Uh, so I, I think it does ultimately go back to a protocol that's unified, but it's going to look and feel like everything is its own marketplace and its own ecosystem. Hmm. Difficult to predict too, for sure. Yeah. Um, I want to move through a couple other stories here. Um, so there's a, a stablecoin bill that's, I guess, in in draft right now that's definitely getting a lot of attention. Um, I guess no one should really be that surprised about this uh, after Terra blew up um, and Liz Warren basically said that this was going to happen. But uh, I, I mean, the news just kind of came out this week. So yeah, give me two seconds. My notes are loading here. But um, all right. So basically, this is the background, which is all right. So US lawmakers are reportedly drafting a house stablecoin bill, and that would take the place uh, that would take place a two year ban on endogenously collateralized stablecoins, which you know, just read algo stable coins. Uh, it also mandates a study on Terra-like tokens from the treasury. Uh, and they're working in consultation with the Fed, the OCC, the FDIC, and the SEC. It's also, the draft is supposed to contain guidance on how even fiat-backed or fiat-pegged stables should be regulated. It would allow both banks and non-banks to issue the stables, but there's an increased layer of regulation. So for banks, you need, would need approval from federal regulators like the OCC. If you're a non-bank issuer, which I guess that'd be like a circle, then you would have to work the, the legislation directs the Federal Reserve is responsible for establishing a process for making application decisions and basically how that would work. I'm curious, you know, yeah, I'll just kind of stop there, but I'm curious, what was your guys' take on, on this? I mean, there's a lot of bills that get proposed. Not all of them, not like 99% of them don't go anywhere, um, especially at a time where, you know, there's like a pretty evenly split divide between the two parties in both the Senate and Congress. So like, I think that's like the first thing, like, you know, I've seen people saying that this is going into effect, like at the end of the year, it's like, we're going to even see this gets a vote by the end of the year. Um, I do think having some regulation on stable coins probably makes sense. Like if you are, you know, like, the, like one aspect of crypto that I think we should work to like actively reduce is like kind of like the nihilistic, you know, like super speculative side of it. Um, and it feels like some of like the worst actors in the space for whatever reason are building these like algo stable coins. I think there is like a legitimate search for like a decentralized stable coin, but like we probably should have some sort of guardrails around it. Um, and, and, you know, that probably isn't like a super popular take, but whatever. Um, cause I think that's like ultimately the road to like mass adoption, like getting a stable coin where like JP Morgan and Goldman and whoever else can interact with it. Um, like that just is going to onboard so much capital and bring so much value. And like, we're going to have to sacrifice some ends of the spectrum of like centralization, but like, I think it's ultimately worth it. Um, do I think this bill is like a good bill? No. I, do I think this bill is going to stay in its current form? No. Um, do I think this bill is going to pass? Probably not. Um, and so like, you know, you have to keep that all in context, but this is where this is going. Like, it's not going to be this bill, but it's probably going to be a bill after that with, you know, some slight language tweaks. The industry has some feedback on it. Like we get to kind of like coalesce on one thing. Maybe it's not a ban, you know, maybe it's like, you know, like a moratorium on like, you know, some aspects of it, but I don't know. I, I, I kind of like, 
I see the problems that it creates, like things like MakerDAO and like the CDPs that could potentially be illegal or like obviously not great. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stable coins went to zero. Um, and I think we kind of need to like collectively just be okay with a little bit of regulation to kind of push the industry meaningfully forward. The, the nihilism stuff is just not going to be enough to push it forward, frankly. Like we just need a different look as an industry. That's just aggressively reasonable of you, Vance. God damn it. It's a spicy takes, man. It's so reasonable. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like a spicy take to people who I generally talk to who are like, you know, non-developers in some random Eastern European country that are like trying to like, you know, do interesting things and like push the limits. But uh, ultimately, I don't think like those people are a very important part of the kind of like rebel alliance that we have going on. Um, you know, like, uh, like we're the good guys, I would say, but like, you know, like, I don't think that's our core constituent set. Right. We only have 60,000 daily to active addresses on <laughs> NFT. Like we should be broadening the tent, um, not trying to make it more strange and like more, you know, exclusive. I feel like what we should be doing is just yelling at each other on Twitter. That feels like the productive <laughs> we, thing. We, to me. I, I, we, we already do that. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. I think I also think um, I guess my, my initial take on this was I, I agree that some amount of regulation is just going to happen whether we like it or not. So we might as well make ourselves a part of the conversation. I view it as a little bit as well of kind of an own goal on, on the US if the bill passes in the way that it's currently looks totally. like it's going to pass. Like, come on, you know, at a point where you know, the dollar is at least being challenged, right? It's kind of a non-consensus view, but it looks like it's at the end of its unquestioned supremacy. You basically get this enormous gift just dumped right in your lap, which is an, an entirely new technology, you know, financial infrastructure and probably the new big next new big tech sector wants to adopt your thing for no additional cost. All you got to do is not take it out behind the barn and shoot it in the face. And they're like, Back of the barn is nice this type of year, you know, like might have to, <laughs> might have to go back behind the barn, you know, it's just, well, I, I, so I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Um, I agree with, with what you're saying generally uh, about, you know, the dollarization and the fact mm -hmm. that we have the ability to, to basically export the dollar at internet speed. What I, I do think is happening though, is, you know, what the most used stablecoin right now, USDC. Yeah. We already have this. And if there is a bill, you know, in this form or some other, who do you think is going to be one of the biggest benefactors of said bill? Circle. Circle. So and coin, and coin uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, you know, they're they're gonna be able to do whatever they need to do to make sure that USDC stays safe. Uh and and so I think it, you know, it's the algorithmic stable coins, it's the you know, 19 year old developers in their, in their parents' basement who are working on something interesting, you know, they're going to be the ones that get hit. Uh, so I, I, but, but I think, you know, I, is this good or is this bad? It's good for the U S because we're, we're still going to be able to dollarize things. It's probably good for consumers because they're not going to be able to, you know, put money into something that's called, called literally a stable coin and should maintain stable value and, and, you know, see it go to zero the next week. So I, I think ultimately some regulation will be good. But um, yeah, to Vance's point, this thing isn't going to go anywhere. Um, you know, we're two months out from an election um, and we'll see what happens then. But, you know, you're, you're going to have to have both the Senate and the House to be able to get anything passed. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. 
We should also give a special shout out and appreciation to like the two organizations that advocate for us, you know, on Capitol Hill, which is Coin Center and Blockchain Association. I feel like every single time there's a bill, I see a thread from Jake Travinsky and he's like, guys, nobody <laughs> freak out. We're working on this. And everyone just loses at him over in the comments. Like, thank you, Jake. We appreciate the work that you do, man. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you. Here, here's a question. Maybe on one hand, you've got very fiat-backed, heavily collateralized, regulated stablecoins like USDC. And then you've got completely uncollateralized algo stablecoins. But there's this emerging kind of gray space in the middle, right? Like Maker kind of sits firmly in between those two camps. But then there are also, there's like, where does this leave something like Go, Aave stablecoin? Let me start and say, I don't know if you have any special knowledge that I might not about crypto collateralized stablecoins and how that's going to be treated. But Maybe even from non-regulatory standpoint, what do you guys think about these, uh, you know, like Curve issuing a stable coin, Aave issuing a stable coin? Like, how do you, what's your view on, on, uh, on those sorts of projects? Lowers the cost of capital if you're a bar land market, ups your regulatory risk, ups your, you know, visibility on regulators' uh, radars. Um, and so there's trade-offs. Uh, I think generally, like, the trade-off that we think is like they're making a short-term, you know, like lower cost of capital, like, you know, better chance of getting traction trade-off for like a longer term, like regulatory risk trade-off because mm. it's just like not clear what the prognosis for stable coins is going to be. Um, and so I think like it's kind of also, you know, a symptom of the bear market where like, guess what? Your bar lend platform isn't doing a lot of volume in, in the bear market. So like strap on a stable coin, strap on a, you know, a, the swap, you know, mechanism. Like these are the things that you kind of see people just start throwing spaghetti at the wall during these markets, to just try to increase their TAM. So not surprised that they're doing it either, but um, like, you know, like we're, we're kind of like fragmenting into like, you know, uh, regulated FI or like FinCEN FI I saw today. I thought that was like kind of funny. And also kind of like everything else. And it's not necessarily like unregulated DeFi. It's just like DeFi that's international that utilizes the self-custodial and like no middleman model to have distribution. And that playbook is going to work for a number of projects. It just probably won't be the largest outcome. Like if you want to create a trillion dollars of value, you need to be welcomed into the regulatory apparatus. On, on And it can be on your own terms, but like that's how ETH in, in our opinion is going to be you know, like one of the larger assets, it's like, it's just, you know, it's grandfathered in a number of ways into the current regulatory environment. And it's made the inroads and, and it's made the explanations and it's had the conversations with people about like, okay, there's not going to be an ETH stable coin. It's like, this is the network. This is how it exists. You know, like here it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's just going to be a bunch of different approaches. Yeah. We, uh, we, we I might've told the story on here. I, I can't remember, but, um, we, our analysts, uh, are, are, are pretty excited about some of these projects like Go and, and the Curve Stable. And there was a um, a very smart guy, but maybe he's a little bit of a critic of, of crypto listening in on the chat and he DM'd me on the Twitter spaces. And he was like, do you realize your analysts are just describing private banknotes? And of course, I was like, oh, yeah. And then I went and looked up what he was talking about. And, uh, and actually, if you go back to like the wildcat era of banking in the U.S., I mean, that's basically what this is, right? Each bank had their own currency that was collateralized by the assets in that bank. You know, you could argue there, there was, there was, you know, everything was regulated on a very state by state basis at that period of time. So maybe that's why it didn't work. But 
it didn't it didn't really work. So I get a little nervous when we talk about every project issuing their own stable coin and maybe maybe there's some element of like empire building here too which is like the core business isn't really working i've got all these assets in the treasury which by the way i didn't convert to usdc before the bear market whoops and now i got to do something with it um so maybe there's some element of that as well i but, mean you get to you get to keen make if you have your own currency right and and that's what it comes down to uh you know you, if everybody's transacting with with something that you created like that is that is a massive advantage, and you know that's literally the advantage of the United States over every other country in the world <laughs> yeah. right now. But yeah. you know, if you think about it, if you're trying to create your own, uh, you know, and it's Curve or it's Ave or it's any of these platforms, uh, you know, that that becomes a huge advantage for your core business, but also just your brand, your recognition, everything. Yeah, I'm just not sure if this matters. If if like you know, great, you you issued a stable coin, uh, your own stable coin. Um, now everyone's gaming. It's like, you know, like, does this matter? Or are you kind of like, you know, there's this like saying that like, you know, sometimes you accidentally fight the last war instead of like the war that you're supposed to be fighting. Um, you know, it, it, like, you know, it's like people showing up with horses to World War One. Uh, you know, like when there's tanks on the field, it's like, oh, shit, like, did we, did we misjudge this? I think, you know, that's kind of like where this might be going. It's like, congratulations, you have this algo stable coin. Uh, it's integrated into approximately zero games. Uh, because, you know, that's not just not what consumers want. And we just need to build for a broader consumer constituency. I think that's where we're going. It's not funny at all, but can you imagine being the side that shows up in horses and the other side of the tanks? Like, not good. Not good at all. I have made a grave miscalculation. This is a very bad idea. And, like, you know, in the last war, the cavalry was the best regiment. And this one, it's like, oh, no. Yeah. Charge. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, these things aren't funny, but it's like, that is why the bloodiest wars are when there's, like, this big advancing in technology and one side gets it and the other one doesn't. So precisely. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a bit of a random topic, but I'd actually love, uh, Vince, I saw you or Vance, I saw you tweeting about this, the, uh, let's call it exploit on AVAX, but it basically is just a very smart kind of move that one trader made extracting a whole bunch of value by trading on GMX actually, but it was, uh, avalanche that was traded. So the model that GMX employs is an Oracle based model with zero slippage, right? So it doesn't matter how big the trade that you take out is. It's not going to impact the price. So they took out this enormous position at zero slippage. Then they went around to other exchanges and actually moved the price and essentially extracted an arbitrage, right? And uh, you can actually look at the price of AVAX over this really short period of time, two hours or something like that. It's like, it looks like these alligator jaws. Uh, and, you know, Josh Lim wrote a great thread on this. And, you know, maybe they extracted somewhere around 750K or something like that, maybe minus whatever they're paying to market makers on centralized exchanges. But could you just, what is your, what is, I, I was kind of looking at that being like, it's a really smart move that this trader did. But then if the Oracle based model is just pulling from other, uh, you know, mod, you know, price feeds that rely on, you know, centralized exchanges, then what's, is that bad for GMX like moving forward? Or what's your thoughts on like Oracle based? pricing yes bad um also like probably illegal to do this so like i don't think this is like good trade and it's like okay you don't want to <laughs> make um so i mean the mechanics of the trade are, are pretty simple so uh basically on one side you have this thing that's saying you know here's the price on a centralized exchange but we're only going to update that price 
you know, for every significant movement or every five minutes. And like Oracle latency is a key part of this. Um, and it. Oracles just like don't update very quickly. So like you get a stale price, you get an old price, whatever. On the other side, you have, you know, markets and increasingly illiquid markets in the bear market where like, you know, you uh, basically take out a bunch of size on like the, I'll guarantee you this price leg. And then you like manipulate the Oracle on the other leg. And, you know, there's a spread that you can capture where like, okay, I moved the price up, you know, 10% on the centralized exchange and I got all of my fill on the one price that was quoted. And like, this isn't just uh, something that happens with oracles, by the way. Like, this is something that also happens with market makers where like, you know, if they don't know that you have like a shit ton of tokens or, you know, if you're trying to buy a shit ton of tokens, like they'll quote you a price that, you know, it looks like as if you were going to buy like only a little bit. But if you run them over, like that's when the market makers lose money. And so like the concept kind of applies not only in DeFi, it happens in centralized crypto as well. I think, you know, Michael and I have both personally lived through this with synthetics back in the day with like the Korean Won exploit, with the maker exploit, which is basically identical to this AVAX exploit. And like the things that synthetics has done to prevent this is reduce the Oracle latency and quote wider spreads in times of higher volatility. And they've basically mm. solved this issue and they don't have a ton of toxic flow anymore. Um, the larger risk of this is like everything is basically more liquid by a factor of like three to five at the moment than it was like six months ago. And so you can do this on like, AVAX is like a top, what, 30, 40 coin? Like, yeah. you know, like, can you do this with a top 20 coin? How real are these prices in general? Like, that's kind of where my thinking goes. Um, and so, yeah, it's a dangerous time to run like a GMX style project because your LPs are just going to get hit. And what, and just uh, elaborate exactly how do LPs, how are they the losers in this transaction? So, I mean, LPs are the counterparties to these trades, right? Um, and so in the synthetics model, you're actually staking the native synthetics token. And, you know, if somebody loses money, you make money as a staker and vice versa. Um, the GMX model, I'm not as familiar with, but it has basically all the similarities to the synthetics model. I'm not sure if it's collateralized by GMX or stables or by the underlying asset itself. Um, actually it would have to be probably GMX or stables just cause like AVAX doesn't exist on ETH. And so like, you know, their LPs are getting hit one way or the other, whether it's collateralized to the token or stables or whatever. Um, it just like is the Oracle model. That's the core problem. Um, and this doesn't just go away. I remember like Michael and I dealing with the synthetics and shit back in the day and just being like, we just wish they would stop. Maybe if we blacklist that address, they'll stop and you know, they'll start a new address. They'll start a new pair. Like, you know, it's just like. Just this whack-a-mole game that you play. So I, I think it's the Oracle model, but really what the Oracle model means is it's infinite slippage for zero cost. That's the issue. Uh, you have to have a slippage-based model where if you're trading, transacting in, in size, you have some additional price impact. Uh, and when you have an Oracle-based model, it's not you have to add that in after the fact because inherently, if you have an Oracle model, you're just able to transact at whatever the price is. You can buy, sell at $3 and it's going to be $3, even if you're buying $10 worth or a million dollars worth. But you have to have some slippage based pricing. Yeah. Well, tough day for it's GM. I mean, I don't know if you've heard anything from the GMX team. Are they do you think they're kind of looking at this being like, oh, shit? Or I mean, I haven't I haven't really heard much communication. This is when it gets like, I don't know what's going to happen to GMX, but like, I remember when this was happening to synthetics, it was like the most concerning thing ever because you can't stop the protocol. You can't blacklist addresses. Yeah. It's like, 
oh, it's happening again. Oh no. <laughs> like, all right, shut that asset market down. Oh no, they're doing it somewhere else. Like, okay, shut that one down. And then like towards the end of it, I think like, remember the front running saga with synthetics, Michael, like, I think Kane eventually like reimbursed people with like SNX tokens or something like, it, yep. it got to be very crazy and it only stopped when we switched to a new model. So like, this is, this is not something that just goes away. Concerning. Um, speaking of things that are concerning, that segue was better than the one <laughs> tried last week. Uh, <laughs> never going to do that again. Get scarred by that. Um, there was a hack at Wintermute. So Wintermute got hacked for $160 million. Is a brute force vulnerability in their, Vanity, it's like it's more of it's a custom address. It is actually a vanity address, but Evgeny tweeted out he's like, the reason they were doing this using these addresses was not for vanity. It wasn't to do something cool. It's there's less zeros basically on the address, which means that they were saving in terms of a gas cost. But basically, Wintermute and, and props that props to Evgeny, props to that entire team. They're one of the largest, most sophisticated market makers in I think all of all of crypto, certainly all of DeFi. Um, so really, really great team. Sucks sucks uh, to see that they had this exploit happen to them. But basically, they, they lost $160 million due to this. They were using something called profanity, which is a, it generates vanity addresses. And there was a, there it, one inch actually flagged that there was a potential exploit there um, where you could basically brute force, right? And get your way into that in, in, in the span of 50 days. And it seems like, um, the, there was just a human error, right, on on their side, where they actually were aware of this vulnerability, but they thought that they had blocked it, but they but they didn't, and they ended up losing 160 million dollars, um, some of which has found its way into into a curve pool. Uh, I think and uh, Wintermute and the team, or uh, Evgeny and the team at Wintermute, they said that we're open to this being a white hack offering, right? You keep 10% as a bounty, so basically return everything except for 16 million USDC. Which I think would be an optimal outcome. I'm not sure if there's really a takeaway here other than just it's kind of a mark of how immature things are if you have teams as sophisticated as Wintermute uh, still suffering these hacks. So, oh, and then I just, just to not, they are completely solvent and they're, you know, I, it, it seems like there is absolutely no worries on that front. Maple's come out to support, they still are well capitalized. So it's not like these are any yeah. contagion concerns. It's more of just a it sucks. Feel badly for them. Yeah. That's when exactly. people you know just like get hacked for a lot of money and you wake up and you're like, should I just send them like a telegram message being like, sorry? Um, yeah. It just sucks. Yeah. I mean, he's like, they're so sophisticated, but I think when it's like, there's just, it always happens on the margins, right? Like, you know, you're the most sophisticated firm and you have all the best security practices, but you're using this one tool to do this one specific thing <clears> that <throat> opens you up to this one specific vector. And like, maybe there's a, 0.01% chance that someone finds it, but like in crypto, that's actually like a 50% chance. Um, and so, yeah, it just sucks and hope they find the money back and, you know, it finds their way to them. But yeah, I, it's, it's like, it's also like the most seasoned Solidity hackers that are doing this. And so right. part of me wonders like how many really seasoned Solidity hackers do we not know of? Um, mm. You know, like some of it feels like very close to the industry, like an inside job almost. Not like from Wintermute, but like who knows how to write that level of like sophistication of Solidity code? Probably not that many people. Mm. Yeah, no, no differentiated takes on my end either. But uh, yeah, it just really sucks. And I think that the one takeaway is just the need that we have for better security. 
And I, I don't know if this means, you know, more custodial experiences, you know, more fireblocks type experiences where it's sort of a hybrid, but uh, you just can't have this much money sitting around, um, you know, in these ecosystems without the level of security that you would expect to be able to protect it. Yeah. Have you guys ever heard of a firm called Knight Capital? Yes. Yeah. Knight Capital's one of the craziest and my just heart goes out to every, I don't know if these were like good people. They were a large, very well-established, super well-capitalized, very sophisticated, basically high frequency trading firm back in 2012. And they essentially vanished uh, in the span of one day. They had this algorithm that was running there something was something was wrong with it and they they vaporized over 400 million dollars worth of capital basically in the span of hours it was like 10 million dollars per minute and they figured it out but it was too late and the firm went bankrupt i mean like can you imagine yeah. that just one day i uh brutal brutal yeah not that that's going to happen we, to but even 160 million is like dude I, that's, not, that's not a small amount of money it's no so <laughs> And to have your algo misfire and like you lose 400, 500 million dollars, that's like obviously not good either. <laughs> There's a down bad. Down <laughs> down so bad. One of uh, one of the things that we used to do at Dropbox um, when uh, when I was there was uh, you go uh, code golfing, which is mm. what small change could wreck the most possible havoc in in the entire ecosystem. And you would go off and you'd literally find these bugs and you'd mark them and all this other stuff. But literally one of the bugs, the, the, the ultimate winner of whoever won golfing uh, found out that there was a plus sign or there was a greater than. And if you change it to a less than, it would say basically delete all data within Dropbox prior to this date <laughs> as opposed to after this date. <laughs> you know, the, these types of things exist in very, very sophisticated organizations and literally one character change from a greater than to a less than would, would be, you know, the end of, uh, you know, at this point, a, a multi-billion dollar company. There's another story like that. There's a, a book that was written about Jim Simons, the founder at, um, shoot, I'm blanking on the name. What's the, it's like okay. the most successful hedge fund. Yeah, Rentec. Um, and they they started off basically, it was really long, really interesting. I mean, first of all, this guy is a, he's basically a mathematical genius, like very well regarded in the math community. And it was, he took a very long, slow start to basically the approach that, 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 that they would end up uh, doing. And they brought over, uh, they, they basically had their algos perfected for like commodities. Uh, they, that's what they started with. And they were trying to crack equities. And that was a really, really difficult problem for them. And they brought over this guy from IBM, who's the crazy kind of right wing guy who's like the biggest donor. Yeah. You know who I'm uh, I know who you're talking about. I'm going to blank on his name. But apparently this guy is wickedly smart. And they're developing this this model. And for like years, they like couldn't crack it, couldn't crack it. Everyone's like, Jim, buddy. It's just not possible with equities. You got to give up on this. And <laughs> this guy's going through the lines of code. Apparently, it was just one letter in the line of code. That was the mistake. It was just a typo for like why the whole model wasn't working. And then they basically fixed it and turned on the greatest money making, uh, you know, algorithm of all time. So just these crazy like sliding glass door moments in history, you know, could have gone so differently. Um, who knows? I've got, I got one more. This isn't really a bit of news, but I wanted to get your guys' take on this. Uh, I, I dropped it in the in the chat. I'm not sure if you guys had a chance to read it, but Vitalik published something basically on how DAOs 
should be governed in principles for DAO governance, which I thought was interesting. And it kind of ties actually back into what we were talking about with stable coins. But basically, he was writing, to paraphrase what he was writing, he was writing this this uh, blog post in response to another blog post that was written that DAOs should basically borrow lessons from corporate governance in terms of running DAOs. That was what he was kind of writing this in response to. And he made the distinction that DAO governance is better in three different types of situations. So convex versus concave decision-making, the decentralization for censorship resistance, and decentralization as credible fairness. So to summarize, convex decision is basically a situation where it's kind of binary, like you rather go in and flip a coin, and whichever coin flip ends up being the better thing. So military strategy, right? You can either do a guerrilla pincer attack, or you can kind of go full for, full force. And that's better committing to one of those two things than like trying to split the difference and do both because then you'll lose. Uh, a concave decision is something where you almost do want to split the difference. So a judicial de- de- uh, decision. So say you, Michael, are accused of a crime that this Michael committed, <laughs> but you go, go to a court, right? And it's like life in prison. Uh, would you want to split the difference and say, hey, 50 50, I'll take a, you know, I'll just take a 50% shot of that? Or would you split the difference and, mm. and do something more fair? So that's convex versus concave decision. He makes the argument concave decisions better for DAOs. And then there's this, the other two are like basically credible neutrality or credible fairness. Um, and then also censorship resistance. So a company doesn't have to be censorship resistant in the same way that like a base layer institution kind of like money does. And then also same thing for like a sovereign organization versus a corporate organization where in a corporate organization, efficiency is really what you want. We're trying to generate a return on capital. Sovereigns have a have kind of a different thing. They have to run the country in a way that seems fair to everyone. Otherwise people hmm. won't buy into the system. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess it really does depend on what your definition of a DAO ultimately is. I've never just asked you guys that. Like, how do you guys think about DAOs in general? How are they different from companies? How should they behave similarly to companies? Like, what's the value proposition of what these things are in your mind? DAOs, to me at least, are are more of like a board of directors concept than like a management team mm. concept. Um, I just don't think we've seen many people do the DAOs as management team you know, school of thought really well. And, and maybe there's like tools that need to be developed and, and maybe like we'll get there. I certainly hold out hope for that. But right now it seems to function better is like how I conceptualize DAOs are like you have this big pot of capital and you have, you know, people who vote on it, people who manage it. But like the DAO's job is to basically act as a board of directors and allocate capital to things. And I, I, I kind of like the sub DAO model as a result where it's like, Here's the big pool of capital, marketing. Okay, we're sending you know ten million dollars to that. Like if you're the Uniswap Grants Foundation. Okay, we're going to send you know twenty million dollars to the you know policy initiative. You know the DeFi Education Fund, and then like the people in those like sub DAOs or corporations that are receiving it. Like it doesn't need to be a sub DAO. It can also be a corporation that's just like receiving grants. Go off and execute whatever your functional uh, you know player is. And I think like that's how I kind of conceptualize it. Um, and it's also worth noting that like Ethereum doesn't have a DAO. You know, Ethereum right. is, is governed in a pretty informal way and it probably has done the best job of achieving long-term results, uh, you, know, uh, you know, so far. And I think that's like pretty indicative as to kind of like how these things actually work. Um, there's also kind of like this concept with DAOs where, you know, at the beginning, most token projects are extremely closely held. 
And so there isn't like really like a difference between like centralized and decentralized making uh, decision making authority in a de facto sense. Um, and so there is like a little bit of like a gray area on that side. Um, the last part I think is just like, okay, you have a DAO, you have a token. Um, does your does your DAO actually need a token? Does your project actually need a token? Like we're definitely kind of like going in the bear market arc where like bear market arc where it's like, um, you know, like maybe you don't need a token, whatever. But I think that's like a valid question. Um, you know, does your game need a decentralized governance token? Maybe, maybe not. Um, does your chain need that? If you have your own chain, probably. And so like, there's different kind of permutations of having tokens, of having app chains, of having DAOs um, that we just haven't explored yet that I think we're going to. Yeah, I mean, obviously I think we share a lot of the same perspective on DAOs. I do think that it's it's maybe not a board. I think it's definitely a board of directors in terms of resource allocation, but I think it's more of like a co-op in terms of, you know, actual work product and, you know, how people are organizing themselves. And, you know, that is just like, inherently less efficient than a corporation. And, and it will always be just like, it'll always be less efficient to have a decentralized distributed network versus a centralized, you know, centrally maintained network. You're never going to have resource allocation that's better uh, in, in both instances. And so I think generally you have to think of what's the, what's the core advantage. The core advantage is flexibility. You have the ability to work for five different DAOs if you want to. If you're an artist and you're like, uh, I kind of, I kind of want to, create some interesting artwork and I want to put that together into a bunch of different games. Well, you can work on five different game worlds all at the same time by working for five different DAOs. And, you know, that's not something that necessarily really easily exists or is dominantly existing in the work world, at least in the United States today. You know, you work for a company and you're, you're gainfully employed by that company and that company is your company, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think the flexibility of work actually is an interesting concept. Um, but you know, as we, as we dip further into the bear market to Vance's point, uh, it just becomes less and less, uh, activated as, as, you know, the thing that people want to do. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think, I, I do think you could probably make a pretty credible argument that Ethereum and Bitcoin are kind of two of the cleanest definition of DAOs, right? There's like not, it's really decentralized uh, governance and architecture there. And the reason I'm like flagging this is because it's just something I've been thinking a lot about. And I think there, you know, to your point about maybe some folks that you talk to that aren't as like pro-regulation for stable coins, like you, everyone should listen to an interview that Rune gave uh, on this podcast called I Pledge Allegiance. And if you kind of hear, he's a really smart guy and like built something incredible with Maker. But like, if you listen to his worldview and his conception of what Maker is, some stuff starts to like click and fall into place for me. And I think it aligns with Vitalik's view here, frankly, because I kind of am on the stage of like, like young in my career, like I want to contribute to DAOs, but I want these things like work. I want to like create products here, but I think there's a very different perception out there, which is to paraphrase Rune, climate change is coming. Western democracies will fall. We need to create something that will last beyond that. And I'm kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to do that. Uh, we should probably try to worry about it then, but I don't know. I think those are like I mean, the two, but these are powerful positions, right? These are powerful. These right. are opinions that people have in very senior places in crypto. So you probably feel just similarly, if you lived in Europe, yeah, you know, it's kind of like a matter of your context and, and maybe Europe is a foreshadowing of what's to come for you know, the, the U S but hopefully not. Yeah. 
Um, we got five minutes left. You guys want to do meme of the week? I've got a meme. Uh, let's see. I had a good one. I've, I've got a meme. All right, Michael, what's yours? I think I know what it is. <laughs> do you? I think I do. I don't know if I can pull it up. Um, yeah. Do you see the ability to share your screen? There's like a little thing at the bottom with a... I think if I describe it, everyone will know I what I'm talking it. about. I describe it. <laughs> uh, the, for, the foreshadowing that Vitalik uh, told everybody um, <laughs> with with the meme from a few weeks ago. <laughs> His down only point. <laughs> His body language was telling us something that we weren't ready to hear. <laughs> it, it was so obvious at the time. I, yeah. I retweeted this one too, but you know, <laughs> this is how I felt yesterday. <laughs> Fuck, why am I watching Bloomberg? Why am I up, you know, to watch the Fed speed? <laughs> I'm looking for a day where we don't have to do this. And I don't even think we what a, do have to do this. It's just more of like, it's become so cultural that you can't even really avoid it at this point. Like, even the Uber drivers and the random guys at the gym are like, you know, do you see the, the Fed hike 75 today? It's like, bro, you know this. <laughs> <laughs> That's super funny. What about uh, Adam Levine sex like he's a 17-year-old? Have you seen the Adam Levine memes? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not going to come down. Bad man, Adam. You're a bad man. I'm not going to make a value judgment here. All I'm saying is that if anyone's like intimate text got blown up on the national stage, woof. Like that is just a yeah. tough position to be in. Uh, but. All right, guys. I think we can. Uh, I think we can end it there. This has been a fun one. Right. I think maybe the strongest one we've ever done. Right. It's almost like we lost some dead weight in the uh, in the in the <laughs> roundup <laughs> here. Addiction. <laughs> 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 no, yeah, no, we're really happy for you, buddy. Enjoy your last few hours of freedom, uh, guys. We'll <laughs> see you here uh, same time next week. Bye, Cheers. Peace. See you.